Welcome, everyone. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're going to continue our series uh, in Ephesians uh, called Resurrection. Um, And today is uh, a really cool topic. It's something that uh, is precious to me and something that I've studied a lot and tried to apply a lot. And I'm hoping to give a little bit of uh, hope uh, for all of us through what Scripture has to say. Um, John, uh, we're giving him the week off from preaching. He's uh, been carrying a really heavy load, and he asked if I would be here. And uh, I'm just so glad to be here. So it's it's wonderful. Um, so welcome, wherever you are, in a lawn chair, uh, on your couch. Uh, we're just glad that you're joining us. We're going to be in Ephesians again. It's Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. So So I would encourage you, uh, if you have a Bible or a device, um, to open it up and keep it there. I'm going to read in a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about what drew me to this particular passage in my walk. Um, Years ago, I was... Uh, the youth pastor here at the Tabernacle. I was considered the world's oldest youth pastor, um, and it was a challenge, but it was good, and there was a, a moment um, where we were going to have this communion, uh, and it was a big deal. It was a culmination of an event we had gone through, and we're going to do communion together, but we wanted it to be big. So I was going to go get enough rolls for everybody uh, and enough juice for everybody. And at that time, you know, a, a weekend attendance was pretty crazy. We were jamming, you know, 70 to 80 kids in the firehouse. Uh, so the person who was going to get uh, the elements uh, ended up having to work late and they couldn't pick it up. So I needed to go uh, flap. So I drive up to Chum's Corners. There's a store up there. I go in and I know where the bread is. And I, I walk around the corner and I get to this spot and right in front of the Hawaiian rolls that I was going to buy for everybody, right in front of that was a little old couple. And, you know, at that time in my life, I was a pretty big deal. Uh, and I thought of just like elbowing my way and I, something, something, this is God prompting, saying stop and watch. Uh, and, and that's been something uh, he's done for me a huge amount of time. So I stopped and watched. And this little couple, I have no idea who they were, but they were as beautiful uh, as they can be. And they're, they're incredibly cute. So I'm watching, and they decide on which bread. It's right next to the Hawaiian bread. And they uh, begin to reach up, the, the gentleman does, and something, you, you know, he has a pain, and you can feel the flinch that he has. And he, like, pulls his arm down, and I'm ready to step in. But again, I'm told to watch, so I watch. So the wife says, sweetheart, I'll get it. I heard that loud and clear. So she uh, went around in front of him, stood there, and she was really short, and she had to reach way up, and she had to be, you know, I don't know, 75, 80 would be my guess. And uh, when I'm watching, she leans up like this, and he puts his hands on her hips and holds her. And I'm just like stunned by this moment. It's like a photograph right in my head. Uh, And then they put the bread in and they begin to leave. And this little couple, they're walking side by side, holding the cart, him, her. And uh, they're talking and they're laughing together. And then they were out of the picture. I grabbed my stuff and left. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, I started to think about that because I spend time sitting and pondering, thinking. And I, I, I I thought, that's exceptional. So I started doing this cool thing. Uh, It wasn't creepy, but I started stalking older couples in grocery stores. So it wasn't creepy for real, but now I'm in observation mode. And over the next six months, I probably observed 25 to 30 couples shopping together. 
So shopping together is a mundane activity. And it's something in marriage that just happens. And when you get older, I guess you get to shop together. Most of the couples... Now, I don't know if this statistic holds, but my data was 95% of the couples did nothing but demean the person they were shopping with. It would be, he picks up the tuna, and her response would be, why are you picking up that brand? That's not on sale. Or he would go, I don't want any more decaf, you know that. And it was loud. And I was stunned, and so... The reason I stopped and watched, God wanted to point out to me, there's something in marriage. And who do you want to be when you're old? Well, I've already asked a couple of my friends that if we're old, because my wife Heidi uh, will never be the grumpy one, but if that's me and that's how I act all of the time, shoot me. Just put me out of everyone else's misery. Because there's something that God had planned for marriage. Now, I began to study in the most critical two places in scripture for me have been Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. I use it in a ton of different counseling, but it's been a mantra for my life, for my married life, but it extends beyond that. Ephesians teaches us how to be like Jesus. It begins with the individual, always, always begins with the individual, but it goes to corporate, to those around us. If you're like me, you know the worst of us men, maybe women, the worst of us comes out at home with the people we love the most. We we can be unbelievably charitable to a salesman that we really don't like and never plan on seeing again. But when we're at home, something else happens. And the worst of us, if you followed me around for a week with a camera, I would be embarrassed and I would have to resign. Set simple. I'm not perfect. It takes diligent effort and it takes proper instruction and it takes this couple that is united behind something together that causes a marriage to be brilliant. It's meant to be a light on the hill. It's the light on the hill when you have five kids running around driving you crazy. It's the light on the hill when all of your kids go away. At the end of the day, if you live long enough, you will be at home alone with your spouse. Work for it. Because it's meant to reflect Jesus Christ. And it isn't just that. It's meant for our comfort, our rest, and our resilience. So as I was studying, I read through Genesis uh, again, and I use this in, in, in marriage counseling, and uh, I get the privilege of, of working with non-believers, um, with believers, with one believer and not another believer, but we always go through scripture together. And I'll tell them, look, this is what we're going to do. You're going to go home, and out loud together, you're going to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you're going to discuss it. Come back with any questions you have for me and I will do my best to answer them. And then I would love you to read the same way, Ephesians 5, 21 through 31. And then I will say this. Uh, it's about submission. Have fun. And that's the end of it. That's the end of that session. They come back, and it's remarkable when a couple will come back because they kind of have some questions. They just like cursory go through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
And then they get to this word called submission. And it's definitively in Scripture. And it causes conflict. The woman often will sit there with her arms crossed. Now she's sitting two feet away from her husband with a little bit of that head like, yeah. And the guy is sitting there as small as he can be looking at me pleading. He goes, why did you do that to me? That's how men respond, and that's how women respond. So if we go back to Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a creation. It starts out with a macro view. It's from the universe, and it just describes God creating everything. It gives no detail specifically, uh, but it does point out that it's good, that it's good, that it's good. And then God creates man and woman in his image, and that's the first time he says it's very good. So mission accomplished. We go to chapter 2 and 3, and we dive down into what's really happening. Now we have boots on the ground. Adam and Eve got to walk with God. They got to talk with God. They knew their roles. He had spoken to both of them. They both knew about the, the forbidden fruit of the trees and why they couldn't go there. But they were given designated roles. Now, this is a critical part, and I want you to get this. I really want you to hear this because it's so misunderstood that Adam was created first. And Eve was created second. Adam first, Eve second. Excuse me. We mean that to interpret as Eve is second best. But I'm going to beg to differ. Because when you go through creation, it's like a beautiful symphony. And it begins a little small and it gets big. Right? That's what symphonies do until the crescendo. And the crescendo, the most vibrant, alive part that will make your tears come to your eyes, will happen, and then it's over, right? Then it's the end, but it builds. That's exactly how God built creation. There's something in music that's real, and it's from him. And this is one of those examples. So as they go through this creation, Adam is created first, but the crown of creation of earthly creation, not heavenly, but earthly creation, is woman. You never go see a symphony that goes, we're almost there, and then it drops off to a disappointment. God created man and woman. And I believe that women have an incredibly special place in gifts that are so amazing. She's there to compliment Adam. Adam is responsible for the garden. That was before Eve, he was told, you are responsible. You are the caretaker. This is your job. So the garden of Eden had work, believe it or not. They had chores. They had things they had to do and maintain. And, and, and there, there was something gorgeous about that with all of the things growing. And then Eve came along because Adam has some lack. He's partly in the image of God, but so is she. And I don't know if you know this or not, but women are completely different from men. Now, if there was a crowd here, I would say, amen, bros, right? Because it's true. Not bad, but different. Something that's hard to wrap our brains around sometimes. The picture is this. is Here's an image of God. And here's an image of God. And God designs the first marriage In Genesis 2, and he brings them together. And now we have a more complete, better, 
earthly picture of what God could look like. Now, problems in marriage, that's what we're going to talk about. So, what happened? I believe that Adam and Eve gave us the formula for all marriage restoration, for healing, whatever it is. We're in a nation where the divorce rate is incredibly high. The dissatisfaction level in marriage is very high. Um, It is insidious and it is very, at times, frustrating to hear. Because in my mind, the simple solution is so available, but it's not easy to do. So we have to look at what's the root cause. And the root cause, I'm going to tell you, in my mind, you can disagree, but I believe it's control. It's control. There are two things that are at the heart of almost every divisive issue I'm involved with, whether it's church-wide, whether it's at home, whether it's in the world, and that is control and fear. Those are the two things. Control is the issue in marriage. First marriage, Adam is instructed to lead Eve, but it's in a sinless, God-like way. And Eve is told to follow, not to be less than or less important, but to take the lead. In the areas where Adam doesn't succeed, she's to step forward. And there's definitive places where that can happen, and it's beautiful, and it's God-driven. But at this moment, Eve moves forward, and she takes control. I don't know why. I know it's sin. It was a sinful heart. There are times we have to take control. If the person next to you passes out at the wheel, control and grab the wheel, right? That's practical. I'm talking about something different. She takes control of the situation thinking, I can probably do this better. So she steps forward and she has a conversation with Satan, who's the great deceiver, the best lawyer there ever was, and he convinces her with partial truths that she's right. She should have control. And so she does. She picks some of the fruit. She eats it. And this is where I pause in counseling and go, okay, where was Adam? And those who are not versed or don't spend much time reading that story will go, that's a good question. I wonder if he was out boating or fishing. He was probably, you know, with with Seth uh, out there walleye fishing. Now, she takes a bite of the fruit and she turns and gives it to Adam who was with her. Boom. Simultaneous first sin, because the sin happened before the action. The sin happened during the decision. What was Adam thinking? Uh, I know you're going to die. I wonder what that looks like. Really? Uh, It's the first time in the Bible that I'm reading a story that I want to punch somebody. And I want to punch Adam. Adam's role was totally different. And Eve's role was totally different. But they both succumbed. He said, I'm tired of control. This responsibility is too big. It's too hard. I don't want to do it. I'll let her. That's easier. And she said, yeah, I'm probably more brilliant than you, so I will. They sin together. The frustrating part of then is, is they're kicked out of the garden. It's the precursor to how God's going to get his kids back is told in Genesis 3. And it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but the woman is now going to have a couple of issues. There's going to be pain in childbirth. Uh, We know that's true. I've watched three of my kids being born, and it's real. Uh, And 
The other one is she's going to desire the position of the man. It's going to be an innate portion of the sin that lives within us. I'm going to desire the position of the man from now on. In the man, it says this, you're going to toil. It's going to be hard. And it's not just about the soil and the weeds and the droughts. It's about leading. It's about control. And Adam is going to struggle with that from now on. So we now need to look at a solution. What's the solution to this issue? Well, we're going to go to the word everybody fears. Submission. Submission. You know, I've done this a hundred times and I still have never been to a place where somebody has raised their hand when I say, is submission a good word? And then I'll go, or a bad word, and all the hands go up. We fear submission. We fear submission because we're out of control. And we don't want to be out of control. But the way the world sees submission is pretty horrible. And the way God sees submission is amazingly beautiful. It is incredible. And it is such, it's such a goal for us to trust and to try it. So let's go to scripture. Ephesians 21 through 31. This is out of the NIV, and I'm going to pause here before I read real quick. Is there's some differences in some translations. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's error necessarily. But in some of the translation, translations, it takes verse 21 and it puts it in the previous group of verses. And that was done with an intent for a male-dominated marriage. And the way that it was really meant was to be included in this portion. And this is what verse 21 says. You can trust your Bible. There are some man-made errors, but it's usually in a grammatic or a break. That's where the errors are, not in content. This is what it says. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is to husbands and wives. So, the first question, who submits first? And the answer is always yes. Submit to one another out of reverence or awe for what Christ did. I'm going to pause right there again because it's this. Christ did not want to go to the cross. He's in the garden, he's praying, he's asking that it be taken away, but if there's no other way, I will submit to your plan, even unto death. We're supposed to submit to one another out of awe for that. Verse 22, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as church is the head of the church, or Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Too many times it stopped right there. Too many times it's been preached that the, the two verses of submit to one another, no, that belongs up here, and we'll just reach down here where you should submit to your husband in everything. That's scary. I've seen the results of perverted messages like that. I've heard it come out of men's mouths that their wives should just submit. And I look back and I say, submit to what? You're a dope. You treat her terribly. Why would anybody ever submit to that? 
This is a process that we're going to learn how to do. But there's fear, and I'm here to acknowledge to the women of the world that sometimes there's a real reason to fear. And sometimes if you need to reach out, we're here to help you trying to decide what to do. If it's an abusive relationship, I've got a whole nother sermon for that. Then it goes for husbands. It's the part that's often left out. The wives have an incredibly hard job. They're supposed to submit like the church submits to Christ because he's the head of the church. Without Christ, there's no church. So if we as followers don't submit to Christ, then we just gotta have a club or we have a cult. But we're submitting to Christ and what he did. We're trying to live like that. Men, for husbands, this means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Just like that is how we're supposed to love our wives. He gave his life up for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, it doesn't say kind of like or write your own rules. It says in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For no man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it. Just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, back in Genesis... A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. There's a great mystery in this, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. End of the reading. So... I'm going to tell you that if you're not a Christian or a follower of Jesus, it won't make much sense. Um, If you are a follower of Jesus, it might still be hard to grasp. But it's very, very simplistically put in these words. It's not complicated. With all of the studies that have been done, the two things that are desired most, the man wants to be respected and the woman wants to be loved. Those are the two greatest desires. I'm not going to argue about that because that's what the evidence shows. And yet, somehow or another, we have this tremendous fear of the word submission. So I'm here to tell you there's two types of submission. There's involuntary submission. And there are times when we can be incredibly afraid of that, and maybe rightly so. Involuntary submission means I do something and someone else gains control over me and my actions, whatever that looks like. My natural response is to fight back, to find a way out of that submission. I don't want to be there. The easiest example is MMA fighting and when somebody isn't knocked out but the person has them in a hold that's going to break their body, they can finally submit by tapping out. It means they lost. And that's how America views the word submission. Jesus turns it on its head. 
He's saying voluntary submission. Voluntary, willful, I choose it. What am I going to submit to? You know, I drove to Manus Day the other day with my wife, and we were a little bit late, and I voluntarily sped. You know, I could have been involuntary, involuntarily in submission to a police officer had I been caught. On the way back, I voluntarily, by my own choice, drove the speed limit. I have a choice. What can I do? What are the consequences? So when we look to Jesus' example, we see this. He lived his life. He did it sinlessly. He taught. He healed. He loved. He gave him himself his entire life selflessly. It doesn't mean that he didn't take care of himself. There were times when he took a rest, where he went away, where he prayed, where he refreshed. It doesn't mean that we're a doormat. It means that we have this thing and we're, we're looking at the others around us and what they need and what I can provide. And Jesus could provide it all. And so he's giving it all. He never took up the possibility of being king. He could have. It says that he could have called thousands of angels down to get him off the cross and just erase it all. He could have. But he voluntarily said no because if I do this and I'm going to defeat Satan, sin, and death and my sacrifice at this moment, I want you to hear that, at this moment, it's going to change history. And everybody, it was a moment decision. And he rose and he defeated. There was an incredible, beautiful outcome to voluntary submission. In my life, my wife led first and she was in a Bible study with uh, several different women, but it was really cool because the women were 20 years old, 30 years old, 40, 50, and 60. And so there was wisdom and there was youthful questions and they were teaching her what the word submission means in an appropriate biblical way. And I was not following Jesus, I was following me. Everything changed about a year into that when I suddenly, with the dullness of my brain, realized something was totally different. I didn't know what it was. My wife never told me, not until years later. She tells me, and then I start studying this stuff and looking. I was like, I should probably do something. And that something led me to find Jesus. And then rather than repenting forever and ever and, and living in this shame of what it used to be like, I started to try to figure out what am I supposed to do? How does my marriage be like Jesus? The problem originated before me. And if I just live oblivious, it will infect me. The problem started before me. That's what happened and then I saw beauty and wanted a change. And that's what this change is, is living like this. Ephesians teaches us why we fear the word submission. It teaches us that there's similarities in some areas. In our worldly view, it's really contrary to what it means. Submission is similar to grace love and mercy because we're submitting to someone who loves us as unconditionally as they possibly can doing the best they can and they're our advocate all of the time that doesn't mean any of our spouses are ever going to be pure, perfect neither are we but we're striving towards that 
What better way to go home than to know that my wife is my advocate regardless of what I did that day, whether it's success or failure? You know, on the way here, she runs out and stops the car and, you know, I rolled on the window and, you know, she leans her hand in and, and it's like, I might be late. This is the first time she says, let's pray. Really? How blessed am I? My wife, who's the most intimate person I know, interceded for me with God to ask him to bless this message, not so that I do good, but that his message is proclaimed. And I'm going to go home, and whether I feel like a failure or not, she's going to read that and treat, she's going to treat me so. Why wouldn't I want to submit to that voluntarily? The control aspect, I'm just telling you, how many times I just continue to watch in this situation that's difficult, maybe it's ended, maybe it's going to end, and it's always he did this, she did that, he, they, the other, and it's always, we're putting God-like expectations on spouses that we could never attain ourselves, and we refuse to submit to what we really submit to, and that's the love of Christ. When we're in a Christ-like submission with our spouse, I can tell you that when we're at our best, it's not anxious. And there's no demeaning. And there's no subtle hate messages. Our worth as a son or daughter in Christ is elevated, not put down. The selfless love and grace can be received without expectations of a return. Now, the changed heart wants to return that, and they want to give the same things. But if you have a spouse who doesn't believe in Christ, then all of this is baloney. And if you do, it's going to be a hard road. But I've watched many of them, my own marriage, change where we both became believers. Scripture tells us not to be unequally yoked. And um, what that means is, is, is pretty critical. Um, it can go way beyond marriages. It can go way beyond it. it. It has to deal with all types of relationships. If you want to be a businessman and you need a partner and you're going with a complete atheist who's out for only himself and his own earthly gains and you want to follow Jesus... There's an unequal yoking right there, but the real deal is when it's in marriage. As I'm watching the world today and young men and young women chasing around doing what's been going on forever, trying to figure out what relationship should I be in, and sometimes there's just so much desperation for some level of affirmation that they just, it's like, she's kind of pretty, he's kind of handsome, whatever, yeah, boom. And in the course of that, when I'm doing a premarital counseling, I'll ask, have you Guys talk about Jesus at all. No. And often, you know, I'll have a private talk, and unfortunately, this is the way it usually goes with the future bride. It's like, it seems like uh, your um, fiance here has some real issues. Looks like he has some anger issues. Looks like he has some selfish issues. And I think he might have a drinking issue as well. And the response is uh, oh, he's really a good person at heart. Hey, maybe. I think if I just do this and this and this, he'll change. No. 
because you don't have control over that. The same for the guys. You don't have control. Nothing you do is going to control that. The only thing that's going to control that that's going to lead to voluntary submission to one another is Christ. And if we both do that in awe and reverence of Christ, the marriage can be beautiful. I wish we had more time. I'm going to wrap it up here because uh, usually um, I've got about another hour and a half worth of just this, of where it goes. But my heart says, um, number one, I want to respect your time, but maybe that's for later. So my hope is, you know, if you're married, if you're single, if you're divorced, it doesn't matter how many times if you're trying to figure out what to do in a relationship. If you're deciding to stay single, that's okay. That's okay. That can be a calling too. But if you're going to do these, any of these things in these relationships, and if you think your relationship is fine, it might be, but fine is like good. It's the enemy of great. It takes work. I've had so many women come up to me and say, I want to say thank you for encouraging my husband and pestering him to go to Fight Club because our entire home life has changed. I fell in love with my husband again because men are learning how to submit and how to follow Christ. Same thing happens in women's Bible study. Only guys don't ever come and talk about that because we're weird. So I'm going to close with this verse, and then I'm going to close with prayer. This is in Philippians it's chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And a friend of mine used this in a devotion earlier this week, and I already had it down, and it's just so appropriate. And this applies to us as humans. It says this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. I mean, just resonate on that for a week. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. See, here's the problem in Christian marriages. A lot of us men can do that outside the home. God's calling us to do that inside the home before we bring it out. He's calling us to not be selfish and to look out for the interests of our spouse. Just insert the word spouse in there. Don't look to your own interests. Don't. That's too easy. And there's no profit. But take an interest in your spouse too. My hope and prayer is that uh, the intensity, the passion of how I feel about this uh, it comes through with love because it's meant to be that way. Um, I see a lot of the pain in my role of the failed uh, marriages and the struggling marriages. And I, I see that. And, and sometimes I just have this, uh, it's like, I wish I could just take this little bit of my brain and insert it and you'd both be better. But they wouldn't because they'd get the other parts of my brain. So we have to rely on Jesus to do that. So I'm going to pray for you and me and us. Father, your love is demonstrated so fully in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's submission, mutual, beautiful, perfect submission between all three. The Son who could be king listened to God, the Father, and was encouraged by the Spirit. And through that, in his own heart of willing submission,
the world changed. We receive that blessing today. Father, forgive us for the times when we're just critical and cruddy and probably should just walk away. Father, I ask that there's encouragement, that there's, there's a placing in our heart uh, to desire to do better, that it, it's not scary. In those first couple of times, it might be, but it's, it's really not. And Father, for the women out there who have struggled with abuse in the past of unhealthy, terrible relationships, um, Father, I ask for a healing and I ask for your direction for them that if it's time that they give it a try a bit by bit. Father, for the men, I, I just pray that we don't add them out. We don't be the first man in scripture that I wanted to punch. That we don't be the one who just kind of sat in the background knowing what was happening was going to harm his wife. Help us not to be that. Help us as men to be like Christ and die to ourselves and our selfishness. In your blessed name, amen. Uh, the band is going to come up and they're going to sing an uh, incredibly worshipful, gorgeous song that teaches us uh, about marriage in a very specific way. It's about submission and it's about how Jesus is our example uh, in, in how to be married. And it shows with selfless love, everything that we desire, this unconditional selfless love was given to us. And he's calling us to be as close to that in our marriage as possible. So uh, if you'll join us. The story of the Son of God hanging on a cross for me. But it ends with the bride and groom and a wedding by the glasses eat. Oh, death, where is your sting? Cause I'll be there singing. Cause I'll be